Happy New Year, and thank you for joining us for the HB Media Minute, a podcast from Haynes & Boone that focuses on legal trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and First Amendment law. Today, we're going to talk about some major changes to trademark and copyright law, which might have been easy to overlook since the new regulations were tucked inside the 5,500-page, 2.3 trillion omnibus spending and COVID-19 relief bill that was signed into law late last year. We have two guests today who are going to walk us through some of the key changes to trademark and copyright law. First up is Joe Mattal, a Washington, D.C. partner in Haynes & Boone's IP practice, who previously served as acting director and acting solicitor of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. We're also joined today by Wesley Lewis, an Austin, Texas associate in uh, Haynes & Boone's IP practice and a returning guest to the podcast. Before we get started, uh, our standard disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. So, Joe, I'm going to start with you today to talk about the Trademark Modernization Act of 2020, which I think you've said is the most significant piece of trademark legislation in the last 75 years. Before we get going to talk about it, I'm, I'm just curious, do you think it's it's strange that such a major law was tucked inside a gigantic appropriations bill? Uh, thank you, Nathan. Not at all. Uh, in fact, it's pretty routine for um, all manner of substantive legislation to be tucked into an omnibus appropriations bill at the end of a Congress. It's sort of a vehicle for doing these things. The general rule is the bills aren't too controversial. The appropriators don't want to take on any more uh, baggage than they have to. And that the uh, chair and ranking of the two authorizing committees, in this case, uh, House and Senate Judiciary approved, they sort of call that the four corners. Um, almost every bill gets enacted in a slightly different way, but using an approps bill as a, re- as a vehicle is pretty common. It's uh, rare, actually, that you see anything go through the standard uh, schoolhouse rock process of a regular order group um, committee. So it, it, you knew this was coming, Joe. This is, this is no surprise. Uh, it seemed likely, you know, this bill was teed up. Um, it had had hearings in both houses. The House Judiciary Committee had put a lot, quite a lot of work into it, had marked it up, even issued a fairly scholarly committee report. Um, and they seemed to have worked things out with the uh, relevant industries to, you know, clear it with leadership and avoid any opposition. So it, it, it seemed right. And I'm not surprised that uh, it, it uh, caught a ride on this approach bill. So let's get into the substance of it. What impact will the law have on trademark infringement cases? I think it's a it's huge. Um, first and foremost, for trademark owners, this bill restores a geographically uniform right to an automatic injunction in trademarks cases. Uh, following the eBay case involving patents, which eliminated the automatic right uh, in patents cases, um, some circuits around the country felt compelled to adopt a similar approach to trademarks. They thought what's good for the patents goose, I guess, has to be applied to the trademarks gander. And uh, um, most significantly, the Ninth Circuit, which is about an eighth of the country, had adopted this type of test where even when you show a violation, that's not uh, good enough to get you uh, that injunction. And uh, unlike patents, to have a valid trademark at all, you have to be using it. So the thing that's usually the precondition for getting the injunction in patents was deemed not good enough, uh, even though it was necessarily present in trademarks cases. Real frustration for trademarks owners, and I'm sure many will be glad to see this fixed. Well, how difficult would it be in, in those instances or in the circuits that, that uh, had a high standard to, to build a case for an injunction? 
You know, the committee report for this bill is instructive. They cite one of the cases that they're effectively overruling, a case called uh, Adidas v. Skechers. Uh, this is a case where the trademark registrant was able to, they produced studies showing that this uh, competitor's mark uh, actually did result in consumer confusion. 20% of consumers thought that uh, this competitor's mark was uh, Adidas's mark. And then they also showed that the uh, competitor was uh, diverting people. They were directing people who were looking for Adidas's goods to their website. The Ninth Circuit affirmed all of that, but then the majority said, still not good enough. And uh, the dissent raised an excellent point of what else do you want you know, to show uh, damage to the, um, you know, to the registrant in these cases? Uh, Judge Richard Clifton had an interesting dissent where he described his own days uh, 30 years earlier as a young attorney representing Louis Vuitton in uh, cases where people were selling infringing um, imitation goods and swap meets and explained the damage that this does and how people want to shut this down and once they've shown the violation, again, you're necessarily using it in commerce. If you have a trademark, that's really all you should uh, need to get that injunction. And again, that's that's been restored. Judge Clifton's been vindicated, and we once more have national uniformity on that issue. Is gaining an injunction often the end goal of for plaintiffs in infringement cases? Yes, because in trademarks, it's off, it's just difficult to calculate your damages. And um, again, these are people who are still, you know, in the process of using these goods in, in commerce, these marks in commerce in relation to the goods when, um, you know, you're out there selling stuff and someone's selling a knockoff that's confusing uh, consumers. Obviously, you'd love to get damages if you can, but really what you want is just to get that person out of the market and get your business back and shut down this often incalculable damage to your brand. You, you really do just want that injunction and at least to stop this uh, going forward. So walk me through how the new law makes it easier for, for uh, plaintiffs to, to establish a, a grounds for an injunction. Um, it's quite simple. Now, uh, once you show a violation of the Trademark Act, you're presumptively entitled to that injunction. There's no longer any further showing of any kind of irreparable harm. Presume that a violation itself leads to irreparable harm. It's a rebuttable presumption, but in practice, it's not rebutted. Um, it, it's, um, it, it's effectively treated as an, as an automatic injunction. So all you have to do is show that this mark was confusingly similar or some other violation of the act, and you can get an order from a court to that competitor to stop using that, uh, you know, that competing mark. Is that a, a pretty easy showing in most cases? Well, you know, it depends on the strength of your case. And, uh, you know, you do still have to make that merit showing. If the competitor's mark isn't, you know, confusingly similar, uh, if it's not going to mislead uh, consumers, then they, they're they perfectly entitled to use that, uh, of course. But in those cases where you do make that showing, um, again, this really simplifies the remedy afterward. Once you show that someone's um, trespassing on your uh, territory and uh, misleading or confusing consumers, um, now you just have the right to get them out of the market. Have there been any critics who suggest that maybe the bar has been lowered t too far? You know, the, there seem to have been some back and forth negotiations uh, on the Hill about this um, with a House Judiciary, but um, th those seem to have been resolved. Uh, there's an interesting p uh, passage in the committee report where they talk about First Amendment concerns and um, how uh, trademarks can't be used to infringe on, uh, interfere with First Amendment activity. I'm guessing someone raised that concern, and the concession was they include a passage in the committee report saying that uh, the First Amendment still exists, and you know, we're not overriding that. Sort 
sort of goes without saying, but often that's what legislative history is for, is to uh, um, assuage the concerns of someone who you're not going to change the text for. You're not going to put language in there saying this doesn't override the First Amendment or interfere with First Amendment case law. That'd be ridiculous. So you put it in the committee report and it gives people comfort, something they can point to that uh, the law hasn't been uh, disturbed in that particular area. And do you think this has made it out into the market and will deter um, that, that people know about this and this that this will the, the, this new law will deter uh, violators? I think so. I mean, that's part of what we're doing is uh, advertising this thing far and wide and letting people know uh, this is out there. I, I think trademark owners will very quickly, you know, the new, there's been a pretty good press coverage. I think the news has spread and um, uh, trademark owners know that there's a new law in town. And the, the law actually, um, oddly enough, doesn't include an express um, effective date provision, but uh, that just means it's subject to the default rule that um, so there's no provision saying, and by the way, this applies to such and such cases on such and such date. That means you're subject to the default rule that a bill is effective on enactment. And when it's a bill like this one that deals with prospective relief, uh, the judicial standard is that it applies immediately to pending cases. So anyone who has a trademark case pending right now can um, invoke this law and um, you know is entitled to the automatic injunction under the new legal standard. It's a dramatic change. I want to turn to one other significant impact that the new law has occasioned. And that is that I understand it's going to make it easier to expunge marginal trademarks. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The um, committee heard concerns and some of these originated with PTO and some with two uh, trademark law professors actually at um, NYU Law School, Barton Beebe and Gene Fromer, who raised the issue of uh, the, the cluttering of the register and the depletion of usable marks. Uh, professors Beebe and Fromer um, have written articles and testified uh, showing how the, you know, the data show that over the last couple of decades, an increasing portion of the most commonly used words in the English language have become trademark. Even the most common surnames have become trademark. And we're just running out of usable trademarks. Um, when a new entrant comes into the market, your mark obviously can't be descriptive, but you want it to somehow allude to or relate to um, the goods that you're selling. And if incumbent uh, registrants have used up all the all the good words, it really puts those new registrants um, at a disadvantage, those new market entrants. And uh, Professors Beebe and Frommer also present some pretty conf- com- compelling data confirming that d- depletion is happening. They show that the average length of trademarks is uh, increasing, both in terms of the number of words in the marks and the number of syllables in the words. And the longer your mark is and the more it departs from the words that you would typically associate uh, with that product, the the, you know, the less effective as it is as a mark. And you're really hurting the little guy with that. Um, this is combined with data that uh, PTO is marshaled uh, that shows that a large portion of the marks on the register are uh, invalid. Um, some of the testimony blames this all on foreigners, but it's domestic registrants doing this too, sort of squatting on marks that um, they're not using. And again, the precondition of having a valid trademark is that uh, you've been using it. Um, in commerce. So the obvious solution, um, which uh, thankfully has now been enacted, is to at least clear out some of those deadwood marks that haven't been used and you know, therefore aren't valid and let a new market entrant um, use those in relation to their own good. It's really a bill that um, helps the little guy and the, uh, you know, the future market entrants. It's, it's rare to see uh, um, a constituency like that. The future gets so much attention, but um, it's, uh, you know, we should be, uh, uh, it, it speaks well of our legislative process that um, something like this was accomplished, something that's clearly just for the 
public benefit and for future generations rather than for some current entrenched interest. Do, do you know what the mechanism will be to clear out the clutter? Is it just sort of all automatic? And I, I suppose folks will, will get some kind of notice if it looks like their trademark will be expunged. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the bill creates several new mechanisms. It allows third parties to submit information when the uh, application for the uh, registration is is pending. And, but um, more significantly, it creates two new procedures to challenge the marks after they're issued during these particular windows. Uh, one is examination, which just follows, focuses on the period when the mark uh, was issued and whether it was in use at the relevant time, which is a requirement for getting that mark. That's not as useful against foreign marks because they have some exceptions to that. Um, foreign regimes typically don't require uh, use of the mark in commerce like the U.S. system does. And then they have a, a broader expungement provision that just says this mark has never been used in commerce. So whether or not it's a foreigner who actually wasn't required to use it in the beginning, since then they have not been using it in commerce and uh, therefore the mark is invalid. And significantly, this is an ex parte uh, proceeding with no discovery. Unlike cancellation proceedings, it's not like a district court proceeding, which means it's going to, it's expected to cost a fraction of the amount. So uh, for people who are, um, you know, new market entrants or existing market entrants who need a new mark, it becomes a viable option when you bring the cost down like this. Well, Joe, thanks so much for that for that summary of the Trademark Modernization Act of 2020. Wesley, I'm going to turn to you now to talk about the Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act, or the CASE Act of 2020, which was also tucked in the Omnibus Relief Bill. Um, Wesley, I understand the CASE Act creates a new tribunal for the resolution of smaller copyright disputes. Uh, can you describe how that's going to work? Yeah, that's right, Nathan. So part of the COVID-19 relief and government funding bill incorporated a version of the CASE Act, which stands, uh, as you mentioned, for the Copyright Alternative in Small Claims Enforcement Act. And the purpose of this act is to create a new mechanism for copyright owners to enforce their rights without having to make a federal case out of it, literally in this case. Um, the, the way that this will work is through the creation of a copyright claims board, which will function as sort of a copyright small claims court. Right now, federal courts exercise jurisdiction over copyright infringement claims, um, but the CASE Act will create a separate body, the Copyright Claims Board, which will allow uh, parties to adjudicate smaller copyright disputes. Um, the board is going to consist of three copyright claims officers who can conduct these small claims proceedings. Um, the CASE Act caps the amount of damages that can be awarded through these board proceedings, uh, and the limits are going to be $15,000 per work um, and $30,000 in damage uh, total in a single proceeding. And that's a substantial reduction over um, from, from sort of statutory damages that are available to parties adjudicating copyright claims in federal court. Another kind of other interesting features of this uh, copyright claims board is there will be uh, limited appellate review. Uh, board decisions won't be precedential. Uh, and, and there is a mechanism for parties to opt out uh, and, and proceed in federal court. You know, the, the CASE Act authorizes the, the Register of Copyrights to issue implementing regulations. So much of this remains to be seen exactly how it's going to play out. But in broad strokes, that's how um, this will work. 
Yeah, I can see some of the what I think would be some of the advantages to, to it, but I'm curious to get your thoughts about what you see as the pros and cons of this new uh, tribunal. Right. Well, you know, much remains to be seen, but uh, it's it, it's looking like sort of a, a, a mixed bag. One one advantage is that the creation of this board will allow greater access to copyright enforcement measures. Copyright litigation is more often than not really time consuming, expensive, and often requires the assistance of attorneys to litigate these sorts of claims. Um, as a result, artists and copyright owners who feel their work um, has been infringed often find themselves without effective recourse um, for litigating those claims in an efficient or cost-effective manner um, simply because of the time, energy, and, and money that's required to pursue a, a copyright claim in federal court. Um, so this will hopefully address this by creating a lower-cost, more efficient alternative um, that will help copyright litigants as well as the court system. You know, some have argued, on the other hand, that that the establishment of the Copyright Claims Board will encourage litigious plaintiffs to uh, engage in copyright trolling or to file uh, claims of dubious merit in the hopes of extracting settlements from Internet users. And, and critics point out that, that this Copyright Claims Board might uh, encourage that sort of behavior um, by lowering the barriers to sort of filing these copyright disputes. Um, you know, so so there is sort of this fear that, that it will be abused. Um, but the goal is hopefully to create a more efficient streamlined process for, um, for adjudicating these sort of smaller claims disputes. So yeah, we'll, we'll see, but it's, uh, you know, people are hopeful that, that it will create a, a, a better process moving forward. I mean, is it is it a guarantee, Wesley, or I don't know, maybe it depends. We'll just have to see how it plays out. That it feels like if all these smaller claims are funneled through this one process or tribunal, one, one thinks that there could be a backlog and that it could maybe take a while to, to get through that system. Or again, does that, do we just have to wait to see how that plays out? Well, yeah, so much of this will, will play out, you know, based on how the implementing regulations are, uh, are, are created. But, you know, the, the thinking is that this will create a more efficient process, whereas you know, litigating in federal court is often a very long, drawn-out process. Um, you know, the, the hope is that by creating a sort of smaller, more efficient uh, procedure for adjudicating these disputes, that will help uh, kind of clear up some of the backlog that the federal courts are seeing and and really resolve these disputes in a more uh, efficient, cost-effective, and, and hopefully a quicker manner. I guess it's federal, federal cases really can be cost-prohibitive for some copyright owners, I would imagine. Absolutely. So, Wesley, I understand that the COVID relief measure included another important piece of IP legislation, the Protecting Lawful Streaming Act. Can you tell us about how that new law works? Sure. This bill was intended to address a disparity between how copyright infringement penalties are assessed in the context of reproduction and distribution of copyrighted works on the one hand and the streaming of those works on the other hand. And what the legislation does is it ratchets up penalties for illegal streaming of copyrighted works. Those are currently a misdemeanor, um, and the PLSA makes illegally streaming 
copyrighted material for a profit, a felony punishable by up to 10 years of imprisonment. Um, That's a huge, huge change. Well, yeah. And it, it, you know, the purpose is to, um, you know, address this disparity because in the context of uh, downloading or reproduction, um, you know, those penalties currently exist. And, and the thinking is um, to account for the ways in which public consumption of copyrighted works has switched over to, to predominantly streaming, um, what the legislation does is, is brings up the penalties for creating illegal streaming services um, in, in, in a way that, that is commensurate with um, you know, downloading or, or reproduction in that way. And, and importantly, I would, I would point out that these penalties really only are, are targeted to the services themselves. Um, and so these, the law is, is limited to applying to these commercial for-profit streaming services that are primi- primarily designed uh, for the purpose of streaming copyrighted works without the authority of the copyright owner or the law to do so. So the thinking is there to increase the penalties for the big fish who provide illegal streaming services uh, while making clear that these felony penalties are not intended to be uh, used to go after individual streamers. And I'm guessing uh, the artists were primarily the ones pushing for this. Do do you know what the impetus was for the new law? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think the answer relates to uh, changes in how people consume copyrighted works. Uh, as I mentioned, the purpose of this bill was to address the disparity between how the law views copyright infringement in the context of downloading or reproduction um, on the one hand and streaming of such works on the other. And, you know, if you look at how people consume copyrighted works these days, uh, there has been really a dramatic shift from uh, downloading to to streaming services. And so I think in recognition of that uh, reality in how people uh, have, have kind of changed their consumption patterns, the, this, this provision was really meant to uh, update the law to reflect that change. And I guess we'll just need to wait to see uh, with time if this really deters, uh, you know, illegal activity for profit. Right, right. Wesley, thank you. And, and Joe, thanks uh, as well. I want to, before we sign off here, just want to let listeners know that um, Joe and Wesley and some of their colleagues on, on Haynes of Boone's IP practice wrote an article discussing the changes uh, to trademark and copyright law included in the Omnibus Appropriations Bill. That article can be found on Haynes and Boone's website. And uh, I'd also like to remind everyone that you can find this podcast and other content from our IP and media and entertainment litigation practices at HaynesBoone.com. Thank you very much and take care.